Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Miriam Vallott, the director of Farm School, a project located in Sonoma County, California, in cooperation with the Permaculture Skills Center. The program she is developing takes an intense, long-term approach to training up a new generation of regenerative farmers from all walks of life, who will then return to their communities to become engaged according to their own interests. Whatever way they find forward down their path, they will do so fully prepared, including business plans, farm designs, and a network of mentors to support them. Though not a permaculture design course in and of itself, it is a parallel kind of program that we in the permaculture community would do well to replicate in order to expand upon the permaculture design course. With the ideas presented here, we can better prepare students to begin applying permaculture whatever their occupation, and wherever they call home. Listen to Miriam's description of the project, including a number of points we discuss applicable to permaculture design. Whether you are an instructor or not, there is much to learn during this conversation. I'll join you afterwards. Then Miriam, if you're ready, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to permaculture and the farm school project, and then we can take the conversation from there. I had the very good fortune of getting to grow up in rural Sonoma County, and um, I got to grow up on land where we had essentially a small homestead, and so I grew up around um, gardening, and uh, we always had a couple animals that were part of um, what we ate each year, and so I really imprinted on that that was a good life and a good way to live. And then only as an older um, sort of teenager discovered that not everybody had access to good food in that way. And, and then when I was in college, I was actually a philosophy major. And I remember my first semester of being a freshman, I had to write a paper about basic human rights. And I got pretty deeply engaged in exploring what that meant. And then my thesis as a, you know, as a freshman was that it should be a basic human right to have access to food that was grown in a way that didn't harm the earth in the process of its production. And so that's really how I came to sort of ecological agriculture and permaculture. And then I went on to study soil microbiology and nutrient cycling in agroecosystems. And through doing that, discovered that a lot of the barriers to agriculture being sustainable were actually more about the sort of human structures And so I did a lot of work doing facilitation on natural resource issues and working more on the policy front and became more of a food systems activist and worked a lot on nutritional issues and obesity and kind of in communities addressing the fact that, you know, really our overall food system and agricultural system was clearly broken because we weren't being nourished in a good way in our communities. So that public health lens was a lot my route into working with communities on healthy food systems, even though my background a lot was in soil science. 
And so I actually, in the early 2000s, started a program called Ecological Agriculture, which was a BA and an MA major at New College of California, which was actually had started as a public interest law school, but then the program developed to having a sustainable communities program. And so I ran the ecological agriculture aspect and um, that was a food systems course. And part of that course was a permaculture certification for all of the students. And so we essentially wove permaculture principles through everything we were doing, not just um, on-farm techniques, but also social, historical, political, um, and community organizing uh, training. Who was it that taught the permaculture design portion of that as part of your program? Was that one of the instructors at the school or or did they bring someone in? In the earlier years, we partnered with the Regenerative Design Institute and Penny Livingston and Brock Dolman and I like designed that whole portion of the program together. And the program at New College was really, you know, in terms of adult education, it was a very innovative program and in that we really immersed ourselves in things. So the way the permaculture certification worked is actually spread over the course of a year, but we would spend a week um, with Penny on, um, we started at Commonweal Gardens the same year she actually started Commonweal Gardens out there. And then we had lots of other instructors over the course of the year who came in. And then it sort of evolved to, it actually became where other majors at the school then also included a permaculture design certificate. And so then we sort of changed it where the majors would all come together for that. And Kendall Dunnigan, who now is a lead teacher for the permaculture design course at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, she would do a lot of the teaching in that class. I would do some of it. Brock would do some of it. Lots of different people would drop in. So and that was at New College. And Eric Olson, who runs Permaculture Artisans, who started the Permaculture Skills Center where the farm school is, would come in and he was a guest instructor during our um, the portion of the course where we really focused on the basics of design. And so he and I have a long relationship of having done some teaching together. Then when did you come on to head up the farm school project? Actually, you know, the evolution of this farm school is kind of interesting. We've been talking for a long time about it. It began with conversations where Eric in particular and a lot of the folks who teach permaculture around here regularly, um, like Penny, like Kendall, were having a lot of conversations about we need something for folks who go through a two-week PDC and then they really want to move into like what's next you know where can I go how can I actually professionalize myself and you know develop my skills enough so that I can really go be a permaculture designer or apply permaculture design principles and ethics to other businesses or ways of actually making a living and so Eric started the Permaculture Skills Center with the idea that that would be a place that 
people could actually then build on like a basic PDC exposure. And then meanwhile, Penny and I were actually talking about starting like an ecological agriculture program that did a similar thing. And so then this program actually came out of the three of us saying this needs to happen. And Penny's in Marin and Eric's in Sonoma. And so it didn't seem like it made sense to have two. So we sort of combined those two ideas. And then my role a lot in my whole life has been as a facilitator. And so a lot of times I don't even think of myself as a teacher or an instructor. I like to design curriculum and create, you know, learning environments where people can really find their, you know, their abilities and develop their skills and their knowledge and their understanding and their, you know, connections that they need to be successful in what they want to do. And so that's really my role with Arm School is doing the curriculum development. So you're more in an executive role in that way, helping to guide what uh, will be taught and how to deliver courses to students? Right. So I'm the um, the Farm School director and, and essentially what I'm doing is, I mean, I could just, I could dive in if you like to just talking about how the program's structured. I would really like to hear more about that because it was one of the pieces when I spoke with Eric some time back was about how when we complete a permaculture design course, and this was something that was talked about in my teacher training, there's the people who are engaged enough to go and choose to take a PDC. You complete that course and you're really fired up and you want to do something, but it's like, I have a PDC, now what? And there's been this bottleneck within the community, it seems, of, okay, well, I have a PDC. The only models that I've seen are I can try to grow food, I can go out and try to be a designer, or I can teach. But there's so much more to even those three tasks than what the PDC provides that we're not really prepared to engage in with just that certificate. We can't just complete the course and hang up a shingle and expect to go to work. But that's not always necessarily communicated well, uh, the follow-up that occurs and what's necessary to proceed. So yeah, I'd really like to know more about the farm school, what the program's like, and how that's helping students to move beyond that initial permaculture education. The way farm school is designed is with the goal in mind of placing new farmers and, and continuing farmers who have, you know, the ethics of, you know, earth care and people care into being successful members of their regional food economies. So essentially the way we've done that is we do have a focus on all of the regenerative farm skills that you need to be able to be successful growing crops. And we're focusing on, you know, making sure that people have the skills that they want that help them really work with nutrient cycles and their soil, their water, their energy systems, their ability to manage and maintain biodiversity, um, their ability to work with the local labor pools and themselves and all of that, but also um, the business skills. And so the programs actually, the classes themselves, it's just, it's an eight-week intensive. Students are together for four days of each of those weeks and then two evenings. And then once they go through that eight-week intensive, 
where we have three days on um, practices and one day on you know sort of land skills um, practices and then one day on business, then students move into a six-month directed mentorship where they're working directly with a really experienced farmer who has similar interests. Through the course of that eight-month process, the students are actually doing their de they're doing a design project. They're creating a farm design. And as we move through the program, we start with working on soils, and they you know, map their soils and gain an understanding of you know, what they can grow that makes sense on the soils that they have. Then we move into water. Um, we move into seeds. We do crop planning. We do energy. So each week is, it's not a separate module, but it's essentially a module where we cover a big topic like that, like animals. But then we also cover business aspects. And each of those weeks I have a co-facilitator or a co-teacher who's really an expert in that area or is holding the expertise. And then we end each week with a design session where we bring in a bunch of different folks, um, local farmers who have a lot of experience to support the students to develop out their farm design with that aspect in mind. So it's kind of an iterative design process as we go through the whole program. And that includes things like students will actually be applying for loans, looking for organic certification, writing their leases if they're going to be um, doing leases. So we have this way where as they go through their design process, they're also creating real relationships with the organizations that they need. Um, in order to be successful. So for example, in California we have an organization called FarmLink which links new farmers with land. They also have a community lending program where they can um, do loans, capital loans and production loans to farmers. And so we'll act, all the students who go through the program will actually, as part of their business plan, be doing loan applications and getting support from FarmLink to make sure that they're done properly. And we're working right now on actually having a guaranteed microloan program for the student. So you can see how in some ways it resembles some of what happens in a PDC, but it gives students, actually we have 32 teaching days together. And so it's a pretty robust program. And by the end of it, they leave with a farm plan and a farm design that is meant to be one that they actually use in the real world. So for students who don't already have access to land or have a farm in mind or maybe a farm that they're already working, we'll actually have land at the Permaculture Skills Center that they can do their project on. And our resident farmer that we brought in to help us with the practicums on the program will be their mentor. So that was a big mouthful, but that's a little bit about how the program's designed. And you know, one of the things that also is analogous to what happens in a PDC is that as we go through, you know, soils, water, animals, energy, seeds, we'll be looking at and developing the new farmer's understanding of 
the nutrient cycles that they can um, learn to really work in concert with. And that will be driving the kinds of practices that we'll be teaching. Like for example, we'll, we'll have a focus on no-till, but we'll also be showing other techniques that people in around here, successful farmers, have used over time. And um, allowing students to explore, hmm, in my situation, what would it look like to really you know, work with the carbon cycle, sequester carbon in my soil for all of the different reasons that I would want to do that. How would I integrate animals in my system and what would that do to my carbon, you know, sequestering or my carbon use and building my soil organic matter and all of that. So there'll be a lot of inquiry associated with the practices that we're presenting and um, looking at a lot of models, we'll be doing a lot of farm tours and talking to farmers about these things. Should someone have taken a PDC before joining this program, or would they receive a permaculture design certificate as a result of this, or is this more like a parallel program? So I would say that we are hoping to have folks who have done PDCs, but we're not requiring it. If, um, like I talked to a student, potential student recently about this, somebody who doesn't have a PDC but has like read all the permaculture books, who is now considering doing a PDC before she comes into the program. But so it's, we're not requiring it, but it would certainly be you know, helpful. And we're also not embedding it in the program because trying to cover getting a farmer ready to go into business in eight months is already a challenge. And that's, you know, and that's part of what we're seeking to do is, like I have a good friend who's been farming for many, many years who didn't grow up farming. And he's now in his mid-60s and started farming you know, in his late teens. And he said then you know, it took him 15 years to be able to become a truck farmer and now an organic nut grower. And that part of what we're doing with these um, new farmer training programs that are happening around the country is we're really trying to speed the rate of people's ability to be really you know, masterful at farming. And so we made a decision to just keep that as our focus. And we'll probably be covering you know, much of what's in a PDC, but we didn't want to feel like we had to have that be our design through FAIR. Well, and that makes sense because it opens up, if you will, the market then for more people to get involved who are just interested in farming and then introduce them to these ideas of ecological design and the ethics that go with it as part of the process. Yeah, and I think, you know, something that is definitely very different about this program than other new farmer training programs, and I've been involved in new farmer training programs for quite some time. I've, I've served on advisory committees to programs that are forming and, and done research on what's out there and what works. One of the things that's really different about this program is that our first week module is actually on design. And the farm plan that people end with, it really is a design process and a design project on every level. And so we're essentially following a permaculture design process to support the students to create their farm design. So it's embedded in the program, that approach, which um, I think is really, it's really different than a lot of what's happening and, of course, inspired by the permaculture design. 
process. If I follow this correct, during the eight-week intensive, it's four days a week plus two evenings? Yeah, so essentially what we do is we have a topic for the week. I could even give you an example. Like for, for example, our first week we focus on design, then we move into soils, um, then water as our two kind of primary design pieces on the farm, and then crop planning. In each of those weeks, like in our crop planning week, for example, we begin the week by really dropping into the subject matter. You know, how do we integrate our cropping plan to fit with our marketing plan? You know, how much are we going to need? How much land will it take? You know, and we do this whether we're doing annuals or perennials or animals. And then we usually start workshopping things by the afternoon. The next day we're most likely on a farm tour because we're really using the Sonoma Marin food system as our whole classroom because there's so much happening here around creating a sustainable food system that we're really using it as a model. And then we work on practices and practicums on our farm that we have at the Permaculture Skills Center. And then that second evening, we have, it's kind of, essentially it's an elder fire where we have a really experienced farmer who has a lot to share come and we just sit around the fire and talk story and I keep these and I really like to make mead and so we'll probably drink mead and get to just hear stories from local farmers about how they have made it farming and what their pitfalls have been and what they would recommend and that kind of thing. And then the third day is our business day and we really focus on the business aspect, like in the crop planning week, it would be farm budgeting, enterprise management, that kind of thing. And then we have this biodiversity thread. So um, one of our instructors, Ben Farr, he's also um, a teacher for seed school. And he's going to be the co-facilitator for our water week, but he's also going to do this kind of biodiversity thread throughout the week. So in the afternoon of business, we would also do this biodiversity piece, which might be a propagation or focusing on seed business. And then Tuesday in the evening, we have a chance for students to connect with local organizations, which are organizations that can support them in being successful. So it might be that we go to a farmer's guild meeting, or it might be that um, we have somebody from FarmLink come and speak to the students, or that week I actually think we're going to have somebody from CalCan, which is our climate action group that works with agriculture. And then the next day we move back into practicums and skill building and then end the week with a design session where people integrate what they've learned into their project design and have, again, local farmers or designers come in and support that process. So that's kind of the rhythm of each of the eight weeks. One of the assignments for students actually is crops that um, they're interested in growing, they'll be doing ethnoecological studies on. And at the end of the program, we'll actually have a binder that includes all of the crops that students have done a deep dive into where they understand like the cultural practices required by that crop, the history of it, where it came from, what it provides in terms of 
nutrition or other uses. So the idea with our second dinner is it's actually an assignment and the students will each only do it once, but they'll be in groups and be responsible for dinner and they'll need to also, we'll also be doing cooking with the crops that students are interested in. Some of that will be, we have a few value-added sessions, but then there's also the um, dinner session where people will actually be working with the crops themselves. With each of those weeks, how much time are the students spending as part of that intensive? So during the eight weeks, it's four full days, which basically means 8.30 to 4.30 and then the two evening programs. And we do have some people who are interested who have families. So the way we have set things up so that it can really be a multi-generational experience is that people who are participating in the program, unless we're in like a really intense lecture session, can have their kids or partners attend like the evening programs and the farm tours and things like that. So it's four days, two evenings for eight weeks. We do have one week off in the middle because we have something here in Sonoma County called the Heirloom Festival where people come from all over the country and focus on on on-farm biodiversity and ecological farming issues and we have great speakers. And so our week off, students will be able to participate. They'll have tickets to that festival. With the program being wrapped around that festival, when does the farm school start and end the intensive? So we start on August 13th is when we begin. It goes Sunday through Wednesday is our week. And then we end October 14th. Yeah, so it's actually it's August 16th to October 13th or 14th. And what is the cost for students who want to attend this program? It depends on when you register. Like it goes up the closer to the date, but it, it ranges between 3200 and 4000 And that includes the expense of paying the mentors that are going to be working with students for six months. So it's the classes and the mentorship. And what's the expected class size for this? I don't want to actually accept more than 22. So I'm wanting to cap it at 22. And we're still kind of in conversation. Like if we end up having a few more than that, I think that could be okay. But I'm imagining that there's some of the students that are coming in that don't have existing farms that we want to support, we're going to be getting them into design teams and giving them these kind of incubator plots. And so for the first year of a program like this, it's a lot to set up these mentorships and make sure people have some land to do their project on. And so we're likely to cap it at 22. And will the mentorship be one-on-one or or are you expecting to have several students per mentor? So I think it'll be a combination. It's going to depend. In July, I'll be sitting down or talking on the phone and doing like a pretty detailed intake interview with each of the students where we really look at their goals and, you know, and how they learn and the kind of farm they're farming they're wanting wanting to do. And, you know, some of the students aren't going to necessarily want to be full-time farmers. They're also looking at value-added businesses or businesses where they're 
brainstorming in conjunction with a restaurant. We already have one student whose project will be a restaurant farm and also be doing some of the work in, you know, with the restaurant. So I'll be doing these detailed intakes and then then we'll have a sense of that. But I, we have a couple mentors, like, for example, this fellow, Scott Matheson, who started um, one of our oldest and most successful CFAs in Sonoma County, Laguna Farms, who I'm guessing we're going to have a number of folks who would like to mentor with him. And he's such a great teacher that I can imagine that it will be great for them to work in groups and you know, and he's a master with kind of annual cropping and succession planning and variety selection. And so we also have um, one of our mentors is she's a holistic rangeland manager and she grows grass-fed beef and pork and poultry. And she's really clear that she only wants to work with somebody who really, really wants to go into primarily animal systems and rangeland. And so she'll likely only have one one person because that's sort of more her personality. And at this point, is this program a definite go? You have enough students to make it successful or are you still trying to reach your cutoff point? I think we're still trying to reach a cutoff point. We're just starting our big marketing push. We have students signed up, but I think I actually don't know. When I took this position, I purposely said that I couldn't be in charge of that because I also do a lot. I'm doing a lot of water policy work right now. And so you can imagine with the drought in California, I'm pretty busy. I work a lot on decentralized and on-site water rule changing projects. (laughs) I'm working on composting toilets right now. I'm working on gray water, alternative black water systems, on farm reuse um, legalization. So I'm not directly involved in the marketing, but I think we need four or five more students before we're, we're a go. With all the partnerships that you have in the community, are there scholarships available to students who are interested but don't have the income to apply for this directly? There's both scholarships and work trade options. So we're taking two administrative work trade positions and two on-farm work trade positions. And I think those are, I should have had this in front of me, but I don't. I think those are $1,000 to $1,500 off of your tuition for the work trade. And then We have some scholarships, and then also we have our local Farmers Guild that has already had a couple applications for scholarships. They support new farmers in getting education. So, yeah, and then also the other thing that we're willing to work with students on along with um, helping them figure out the tuition is housing because we already know we're going to have people coming from other parts of the country. And so one of the interesting dynamics for us as we develop the first year is that I'm actually going over to a farm, two farms this afternoon. One is one of the seed farms where we have um, one of our mentors for people who want to be growing seeds for production. It's the Bohemian Farm Collective is what it's called. It's actually a group of five women who started this about 15 years ago. And I'm going to go over there because she's got four sites where students can stay during the eight weeks. And so if people are coming in from far away, the idea is that they could stay here during the classes and then we would actually help them find a mentor in their region if they decide that that's what they would prefer to do is go back home right after the classes. 
Overall, it sounds like this is well thought out and in the end, incredibly practical for someone who wants to go down this road. As I mentioned earlier, it's one of the pieces of the permaculture design certificate that kind of leaves people hanging that it provides a great background on ecological design, but not about what to do with it afterwards, or that continued contact between instructors and students to ensure a new successful crop of practitioners. Exactly. And that's, you know, our commitment all the way along in terms of how we've developed the curriculum and what's led us to have this huge piece of the curriculum actually being building the relationships with all the different organizations and institutions that farmers need to be successful as well as relationships with the, you know, with the natural resources, that's been our continual check is like, is this program actually going to support somebody to be able to have a viable livelihood that's in regenerative agriculture, right? And so everything we're doing is around that. Even some of the cultural pieces where, you know, we're eating food together, that's part of a healthy community is the cultural aspects. And, you know, and in permaculture design courses, that's often, you know, highlighted so well. And that experience that we have of having relationships with each other and eating together is part of what, um, supports healthy community development. And so we're, even the pieces like that that we have in the program are around supporting farmers to be able to be that in their communities and support that in their communities and have their farms be places where people feel connected, you know, connected to the soil, the land that they live on, connected to what they're breathing in the air, connected to the natural politics of, you know, like in California right now, we're all working so hard on saying, look, like we have these ecosystem services, like the salt, we need healthy soils. We need it to address, you know, climate mitigation. We need it to address like the future that we want to have for our children of highly nutritious food. And so every little piece in the program we've then referred back to, does this really help a farmer have a sustainable livelihood in a healthy regional food system? And are they then a key player in creating a healthy food system? One of the practical pieces that you touched on that stands out to me is connecting the students with farmers who are doing the kind of work that that student can expect in their area, whether that happens to be in California or wherever they call home. It was something that I got into in my permaculture design course was we were told to be designers. And in that process, my design group wound up putting together this very crazy, exotic indoor aquarium that could raise fish and do aquaculture inside using filtered rainwater and all this other crazy stuff, but that had no real application. And I think about all the emails or phone calls I get about swales or hugel culture, which seem to be like the two biggest hot items in permaculture right now. But in reading Toby Hemingway's latest book, The Permaculture City, there's a reference in there about all the things that have been abandoned, like swales and herb spirals, because they weren't well considered before they were put in. And that practicality really 
speaks a lot of what someone can then accomplish afterwards to know who you can go to for a loan, to have that business development side of things because of all the passion that someone might bring, but not have the entrepreneurial skills to follow it up with. Right. I think that was very well said. So the entrepreneurial piece and the business piece and the land tenure and understanding what regulations you have to deal with and how to navigate like working with a county planning department, for example, if you want to have a firm stand or, you know, build a wash station. So there's all of that. So we're definitely intending for people to leave with a good exposure to being able to have skills to deal with all of those invisible structures pieces. But also, like, I think the swales is a great example. Like, when we are working on water, and of course, we'll touch on water all the way through, but in our particular week on water, what we're seeking to support students to build is like a water literacy, understanding really how the water cycle works. And what happens in soil? Like, how does the soil actually become a reservoir for water? And how do we know enough about soils to understand our particular soil in relation to water? And, you know, it's the same with rainwater catchment, where people say, oh, I want to do rainwater catchment. And, well, that's great, but let's look at your particular site. And let's start with the soil and start with maybe some other things that we could do and then see, you know, what the whole package, the integrated water management that makes sense is. And so the idea is that we can actually support students to have a good enough understanding of those cycles, like the water cycle or the carbon cycle, so that they can really understand enough to then know what their particular site needs in order to be resilient and to be strong for the future so that it can keep um, building and fertility and diversity. So I think your point is really something that we've really considered. And that's why we're teaching a lot of practices, but all of the practices are built on an understanding and a knowledge of the cycles that we're working with. You know, and that's kind of like where I said, like with soils, you know, right now everybody wants everything to be no-till. And of course, in permaculture, we really understand how incredibly valuable that can be and how important it is. But one thing I've learned over the years of working with lots of farmers is there's this funny piece around, you know, developing all these the skills and the understanding and having the science behind what you're doing but then there's also personality. Like I always feel, you know, sad when you have somebody who's moving into farming from gardening who's developed a love of like playing and tending their soil and they, they want to kind of get in there and shape things. And, you know, so I think part of what we're doing is we don't want to discourage anybody having like a love of tending the land. So it may be that we'll be spending a lot of time at looking how we can do no-till systems at scale for that kind of small to medium range integrated agriculture scale, which, you know, even the UN now says is our future. <laughs> you know, the way we're going to feed 9 billion people is with small scale integrated agriculture. I mean, we actually now have science to support what we've intuited for a really long time. But we're not going to be telling students, you should only do no-till. We're going to be exploring many different techniques and then allowing students to develop, of course, their own style that works for their site because the farmer is really a part of the system as well. That's one example. 
Well, and it speaks to, of course, I'm so rooted in the permaculture side of things, I can't necessarily speak to the farming side. But there's even David Holmgren talks about in his book, Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, that there are certain times where, you know, it's kind of okay to spray. Or that idea of not discouraging someone that we can't become so dogmatic on an idea to not allow someone to explore it because they might find a new method or technique that makes what they're doing even more regenerative. And without that encouragement, they might not ever do it. Yep. I think that one of the things that I love about working with permaculture frame and my first permaculture class I ever took was actually with David Holmgren. And one of the things that happened in that class is he gave us an exercise where we were supposed to use the permaculture principles to decide what should happen with these roadside plantings of natives where the usual, the normal practice was to spray first so that the natives wouldn't get outcompeted in their first two years. And we had to debate this using the permaculture principles. And it made such an impact on me to where I realized, oh, one of the things that permaculture gives us the most powerful is the ability to be critical thinkers and to understand systems and to like actually engage with them with the nature that we're living in as part of the system. And it relaxed my critique of agriculture because it supported me in believing, you know, we can do agriculture in a way where we're working with the cycles, but we have to think and we have to be able to be creative and we have to be able to use the parts of ourselves that are willing to like experiment and understand when we're doing trade-offs. And so I feel like permaculture actually really supports us in that because I've been around, you know, sort of more input substitution type organic agriculture. And there's a way where all of us, when we're really busy and things are complicated and we don't have enough money and then we have kids and we're trying to get people into college and, you know, life comes up with us. It's hard to sometimes to take the time to actually think through. So we want to just read something off a bottle and keep going, right? But I think permaculture gives us a way and a language and a system and a set of criteria which enable us to be more critical thinkers and creative engagers in our natural environment in order to, you know, get what we need, like the money and the food and the clean water and So, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but I I really appreciate what you just said. And I really like where you went with that because it reminds me of a time that I was a guest instructor at a permaculture design course. And during a break, I was talking with two of the students about like real world design and actually meeting with a customer and designing for their with the customer's goals and needs in mind. And I feel pretty clear that I would rather work with a customer and meet most of their goals, but it only be one percent permaculture then reach most of permaculture's goals and it only be 1% of what my client is looking for because that that latter design won't get implemented. But if I can shift what's happening just a little bit towards a more regenerative system, it's a beginning. Yes. And agriculture, that happens all the time. Like, you know, if one of our goals is in, is diversity and we know that diversity gives us this genetic resilience and it gives us protection against um, like pests and diseases and it gives us protection against drawing down our nutrient supplies too much and all of these different sort of services or resources. But sometimes if we need to make a living, we might have to reduce our diversity a little bit 
in order to focus on crops that can get us enough money in our local economy so that we can keep going to the next year. And so there's these constant trade-offs with these basic principles that we understand. And as much as we might want to pick up tomorrow and completely change the system as it is, many of us aren't just ready to do that, or we go down that road and realize we don't have the skills and just abandon the process and just decide, you know, that's not, that's not enough, I can't do this, rather than re-examining that place and going, okay, well, I don't have this skill, I don't have that skill, let's find those and work on them. But I mean, even broader, it was a conversation that I had with Dr. Laura Jackson a while back, Wes Jackson of the Land Institute's daughter. And in that conversation, she laid out for me just how systemic the agricultural model as it currently exists is for those acres and acres of soybeans and corn and how hard it is for a farmer to break out of that and to change the system that they're working in because right now that pays their bills. Exactly. And they're getting pushed by the banks and by our whole economic model to keep expanding the amount of monoculture they have. There's In Pennsylvania, we have every year the annual farm show. And it'll be, it's been 99 years so far. And if I remember, it's the largest indoor agricultural event in the country. And in walking through there, my son, who's five right now, absolutely adores large machines. So we go and we look at the the combines and all the other large tractors and farm equipment and looking at the prices of some of those devices, hundreds of thousands of dollars and all this other stuff that is all part of this system that farmers are brought up in that are agricultural schools teach and everything else. And another piece that comes to mind is a listener who called in from the Midwest who just wanted to convert a few acres of their family's farmland into a food forest and the pushback that they got because of how different that system was from what this multi-generational farming family has done. And that I think it speaks to some of your work as an activist and a planner and being involved in policy that there are a lot of social conversations that need to be had before we can really start to move these physical systems into something different. Absolutely. And one of the organizations that um, we'll be working with with the farm school is a, is a distribution company called Speed Sonoma. And Feed Sonoma is a small kind of food hub distribution business that was started by a group of people out of a conversation that was held in the county where 350 people came together towards creating some kind of a food action plan that could be adopted by the Board of Supervisors and identifying, like, really, what are the barriers in our region to having, you know, really healthy, robust food system on all the levels from, you know, how we care for the environment to our production practices, to our labor practices, to um, how our businesses are run, you know, to what we're actually feeding our children in the schools, all of that. So it was kind of asking the big questions. And, And out of that, there was a group of people that got so excited about the idea of actually having a business that could take small amounts of produce from some of these smaller farmers and really support them by doing a lot of the marketing that this organization Feed Sonoma was born. It's about five years old now. It's doubling every year and what it can do. And so, you know, one of the things we'll be doing is connecting 
farmers in the program with Feed Sonoma as a potential market that they could actually even build into their marketing plans. So, yes, and I think more and more what we need is for our education that goes beyond PDCs to be these real-life projects. So we won't have one student in the program whose design project isn't a real project that then is going to be producing food for people in their community to eat. Even if they don't end up becoming like farmers for the long term and maybe they go into something else, a restaurant business or value add or education, that's okay. But at least they'll have that experience of going all the way through a real project. As an educator, I like that because I I take a very project based focus to a lot of the pedagogy that I like to use. I find that, especially with adults, it helps to solidify a lot of the theory and conversation into something where there's an application of skills. Yeah, and then you're also doing real change work in your community in the process of people learning the skills that they're looking for. Like, when I was at New College, um, one year the class project was to start a salad bar program in a local elementary school. And so the students had to go through and they interviewed the kids about what they liked to eat. They had to deal with the administration. And this was more of a, you know, in a BA setting. We got them three quarters of an acre to, to use. They had developed their crop plan. It had to be very carefully laid out in terms of succession because they were doing this salad bar program. They got paid for their produce. And for many of them, that was the first time they'd ever been exposed to either gardening or farming. And that group that went through that process there's three of those people who have now farming businesses which have a component of serving schools. So it stayed with them, you know, and that was 10 years ago. And that really helps show that this work can be done, it can be successful, but we just need access to the information and the models of how to make it work. Right. Earlier when you were mentioning small-scale integrated agriculture, how small is small-scale? That's a great question. And I think, um, you know, right now USDA, so I think, says anything up to, is it 50 acres? And then, and then over 50 is sort of more medium scale. But I think for us, our range is kind of a half an acre up to 150 acres that we're really looking at. With the exception of that, I'm guessing we, even in the first year, we may have a person or two who really wants to go into focusing on animal production, in which case it would be more land, obviously. But I think for small-scale integrated agriculture, what we really mean is that there's, you know, unless it's not economically viable at this time, there's a mix of perennials, annuals, and animals. And that the scale is such that the produce is being grown for their region. And, you know, and depending on where you are, that can change. Like, not every farm is close enough, say, to an urban center to survive without some travel. Like, one of the places we'll be visiting is Live Power Farm, which is one of the first California CSAs. And they go 100 miles to deliver their boxes um, because they, they're very rural and they bring it into the city. But I think, you know, that's what we mean is you're producing food for your region. So we're localizing 
our food. We're localizing how we use our water resources. We're localizing, you know, our markets. And that goes back to the practical side of the conversation in that in order to be successful, your students through this process are going to need to be doing niche analysis of where they live and how what they're doing will fit into it. That just because they may love something in particular doesn't mean that that's what they can grow because the market might not bear it. Exactly. And that's why we have our business track is really robust. We have Lyft Economies, which is a a small business, Kevin Bayouk, he's sort of directing the development of our business track. And he has a lot of experience doing marketing work. And then we have a number of people who are really great marketers here locally who are have successful farms who will then be teaching marketing aspect. And then our crop planning curriculum is all tied into the marketing and then farm budgeting. So that those all match. From my own work, I have to say that's pretty awesome because hiring someone to do marketing professionally for a business is not cheap. Right. And that's why we're going to be looking a lot at alternative models too. Like, for example, if you decide, oh, I'm not really a marketer, but we have things like Feed Sonoma, our original conception when, you know, Eric and Penny and I were sitting down going, well, we really want this to do, we imagine that eventually if we just trust the students and trust the design process, that we'll likely be having some co-ops coming out of this program where students will be working together to support, you know, a number of operations and maybe one of them really focuses on marketing. And so my guess is that this program will lead to a number of really successful farms or farm partnerships or farm co-ops and that you know, we just have a lot of faith in individuals, but also people working together and in the design process. Really excited to see, you know, in 10 years, what what kind of organizations have evolved. I really like everywhere that you've taken us, and I'd certainly like to know more as this project develops. Where we're sitting right now in mid-May, Recording the interview, it looks like by the time the program begins and the eight months have passed, it'll be about a year from now after this first course has completed. I'd certainly like to have you back then to talk about how this worked and what your thoughts and feedback are from the experience. But as I've had you for a while today and we've covered so much, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I mean, I think what comes up for me and why I'm committing to putting time and energy into this design and creating, you know, all these extra relationships, extra meaning they're not actually extra, but they're more than a normal curriculum often has, is because we at the Permaculture Skills Center and many, many people who are around here who are teaching permaculture and farming and who are involved in activism at many different levels, the level of urgency that we have to acknowledge as communities towards being able to shift our how we do our food is really, really high. And part of that is that we need a lot of farmers quickly who have the skills to do the small and medium scale type of integrated ecologically based agriculture and 
So we have to ensure that there's support for people to develop those skills. You know, kind of like we said earlier in the interview, like we don't actually have 15 years. There aren't that many people growing up in farming, learning these skills. Our populations are growing really, really quickly. The level of problems in our you know, home environments from our current agricultural system at every level, we don't even need to make the list, is growing really quickly. And so there's a way where this is a key moment. The awareness is much more mainstreamed that this is needed than it was, say, you know, 20 years ago. And so I think it's just a really important time to have programs like this available to people who are ready to work in this very root system of providing food for our communities to be able to do it well on many, many different levels and and be able to support themselves doing it. You know, we need to stop asking you know, we've used the phrase before, but these keystone species in our community is called small-scale ecological farmers. We need to stop asking them to live on $12,000 a year in regions where that isn't enough and they don't even have a good place to live and they have to lease land under circumstances that aren't ideal. We need to, you know, sort of shift our regional economies around to where those people like our teachers and other really important, you know, members of our communities are supported and we need to give them the skills to know how to support themselves. Well, thank you, Miriam, for joining me and everything that you've shared today. Thank you for having me on. And that was Miriam Vallot. Find out more about this project by going to permacultureskillscenter.org and clicking on Farm School. You'll find a direct link in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Two things, and it always seems to be two things, doesn't it? Stand out for me from this interview. The first is the reminder that we need to take a long-term approach to working with permaculture and applying it to the various systems of the world that we are a part of, whether we're a physicist, a chemist, a farmer, a gardener, a stay-at-home parent, every one of those systems we can do something with. But also, in this long-term approach, while we're doing what we do, we need to be training up those who will follow us, whether our students, our children, community leaders, whatever role we happen to find ourselves in. As much as I would like to see something happen overnight, to do so is foolish and it's dangerous. I want our transition to whatever the world may be, to be a slow and peaceful one, not chaotic and harmful to others. It's one thing to uproot our own lives to try something new, but we cannot expect the same of our family, friends, or larger communities, nor should we force what we're doing upon them. Take one step today, another tomorrow, and over a lifetime, you can make a difference to the whole world. The second part for me is the need to expand the pool of permaculture education and permaculture educators. There are many great classes and teachers out there, including some you've heard of and hundreds you have not. But we don't have enough classes and teachers to train up the numbers that we need to bring about broad systemic change. The Permaculture Design course is a great place to start down this path formally, as are the advanced trainings, but we need more of them with greater variety. Niches to fill to get this information in the hands of gardeners, homeowners, community leaders, and academics. Small-scale programs that fill the role of PDC light, but that are more than 
just an introduction to permaculture, that are involved in engaging rather than just a lecture. But at the same time, we need longer, more intensive programs, like the one Miriam outlined, that can take a particular subject underneath this big umbrella of design and expand upon it to fill a specific role to a particular audience, be that a farmer, as Miriam laid out, or a community leader, a physician, a parent, a scientist. Everyone can benefit from permaculture and this system of design, but we have to bring it to them in a way that is useful and functional to their lives, not ask them to come to us. Eventually, I'd like to see a formalized program where someone can earn a multidisciplinary associate's, bachelor's, master's, and eventually PhD in permaculture design from a regionally accredited college or university. Then we can start getting into the 37,000 public and private high schools and 2,000 nonprofit colleges and universities just in the United States. By doing so, we can step out of the niche we currently inhabit with the support of even larger communities. This second piece comes from my own journey and biases. I'll readily admit, I've experienced the difference repeatedly that a set of credentials can make in opening doors and garnering immediate acceptance and credibility. Just by mentioning graduate student, I was able to interview a number of guests who had hesitated before. Coming as an academic equal shows our own seriousness and interest in the subjects at hand, and that we have respect for the people who we're going to be interacting with. Just the same, now that I'm through with that program, mentioning master's degree opens up other opportunities. This education is a prerequisite in some areas, but even in those where it's not, it really does shorten the line that we're standing in. To keep the ball rolling, if we want to take permaculture mainstream, we need to dig into the system that exists and leverage it to our needs, to be subversive and use what works for us to make a difference, to help students gain access to this education in a way that is equitable to everyone involved. I'm not saying that the educational institutions as they exist are perfect, but we can't change them if we don't get engaged. We must do something. We must, each and every one of us, take action. Or these systems will never move in a direction that makes the difference we want them to. Worse off, they could move into a place that makes this world less regenerative and even harder to change. As a result of this interview with Miriam and a number of other conversations I've had over the past few weeks, I have decided that I am going to continue on my personal journey to eventually be able to call this show The Permaculture Podcast with Dr. Scott Mann. Though I don't know how things will work out, as there are many steps in the process, I've begun my application to Penn State University for a DED in adult education, with the plan, should I be accepted, to start this fall 2015. During that time, I will continue to be available to the community as a resource by email or phone, and will keep creating the podcast in one form or another into the future. If you like this show, support it however you can. Tell a friend. Share a link on your favorite website, forum, or blog. Listen to your favorite episode with your friends or family. Talk about it. Make a donation via the PayPal link on the front page of the website at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Ask your boss, or yourself if you are the boss, to sponsor an episode. Go to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast and become a member. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, letting me know what a difference a particular guest had in your life. If I've said something that inspires you or that got you fired up enough to take action, call me, 717-827-6266. You can also use that email address and phone number to get in touch if I can help you in any way along your permaculture path. 
Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.